Hey Jordan, how's it going? What's up, Rob? Ah, uh, not much. You know, it's uh, it's work from home Friday here at Insurgents HQ. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm relaxed. I'm in my element. I'm at home. Happy that the interns are st- obviously still at the office. Uh, it's for us. It's for the you know the the main guys. We're allowed to. We we need to make sure some people are still. No one wants to, none of these millennials don't want to work anymore. You know, these zoomers lazy. So I'm happy that they're at the office yeah. making, making everything work. And I'm happy to be back here. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's exhausting going into the office. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm glad the interns are getting that work ethic, but I think we've put in our time with all yep. of these episodes for four years now that, yeah, we are working at home. Yep. And it's a great opportunity for them to, to do that. Yeah. Commute builds character. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know what I've been doing though, Rob? What's that? For the first time ever in my life, I'm watching The Sopranos. Ooh, nice. No, it's funny. You mentioned that to me earlier and I've been doing the same thing. I've, I've watched a, some of The Sopranos. I remember I watched season four when that was going on, but I, I had never watched the early seasons as well. So I've been doing the same thing. I've been making my way through the first couple seasons as well. I'm on the beginning of season yeah. three. How are you enjoying that? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's really good. Um, you know, there's always, like, I, I'm so late to TV shows. I'm just not a big TV show person. Uh, I'm more of a movie guy. And I just, you know, I just watched Breaking Bad, what, last year yeah. for the first time. Loved it. Uh, and I figured, yeah, now I'm, it's 2024. The show is 25 years old. Now's a good time to get into The Sopranos. So <laughs> I'm almost done with season two and it's fucking great. Yeah. I think I've, I've been having an interesting time watching it as well because like a similar with Breaking Bad, how like Walt became this like hero to people. And it's like, are we watching the same show? Like this guy's obviously a really bad person. I get that he's the protagonist and like you can, you can watch it on that level, but like you shouldn't be like idolizing this person or, or like making excuses for them. And I've noticed the same thing a little bit with Tony Soprano as well, who's obviously a really compelling character, amazing performance by James Gandolfini, but like horrible person, you know, and the idea that he got, he ended up getting, like, he has people and fans of the show that are like, yeah, Tony Soprano. All right. When he's like always doing this really terrible shit, you know, I think that's kind of interesting the way that that, that kind of anti-hero trope has become so prevalent in our media and how people seem to be taking away a lot of the wrong lessons from that. Yeah, it's, I don't know what it is. It just seems like there, there's this pattern where people would just say, oh, this is the protagonist. I like him or I like her. And they can't think beyond just, oh, this is the main character. There's no recognition of their behavior being bad or inherently bad and objectively bad. Like in both, they're monsters. 
Tony is framed, especially early, as more of a family man than Walt. You know, Walt pretty quickly turns into just a vile, yeah, terrible guy. I think maybe because Tony is bad from the start, but in his weird way, quote, cares about his family more, despite like openly cheating on his wife that she knows about being a pretty absent and shitty father, self-interested racist as well. And other. Yeah. Oh yeah. And just like, just all around bad guy. Just, well, this person is cool. He makes a lot of money. He's a boss. Like I like him. Just weird. I, I like, I like when shows do that. But I'm also not the type of person to be like, this guy rocks. It's just such a weird consumption habit that I, I don't get. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really strange. But um, yeah, it's funny that we're both doing that. I am, I am, I feel like I've had this gap in my kind of like pop cultural knowledge over the last couple of years by not ever having seen that entire thing. So I have really been enjoying uh, just watching it, watching it from the start. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Good. Well, we got a crate. We got a huge episode today. There is an absolutely explosive story yeah. going on right now with uh, the New York Times. Their promotion of this narrative um, about uh, systemic intentional uh, campaigns of of rape and sexual assault and sexual violence, and they, that was used as part of the October seventh. Uh, attacks. This has been this narrative has been going on since October seventh, but this really crystallized in this New York Times piece, which came out, uh, I believe, at the end of December, called uh, "Screams Without Words." And there has been a massive scandal over the last couple of weeks, as that's been exposed as being just it, the entire piece has fallen apart. Uh, it's being exposed as incredibly fraudulent. The the main author of this piece was had zero journalistic experience. It's all relying on this secondhand information from these extremely unreliable sources. Uh, you know, not since Judith Miller and the the weapons of mass destruction type stuff. I think has has New York Times faced a kind of like uh, a crisis like this or a scandal like this, and it is a scandal because this has been used to launder and justify. Uh, Israeli, uh, this Israeli genocidal mass murder campaign going on in Gaza right now. So it's a huge story. It's a huge scandal. And we talked to uh, today, Daniel Bogoslaw of The Intercept, who uh, co-authored a piece with Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Grimm, breaking this down. And he was able to come onto the show to uh, to speak to us about it. What did you, what did you make of that? Yeah, it was a really good conversation. Uh, that's the intercept story was really fascinating and just through every step of this process that they, that the New York times undertook for this story, there were all of these red flags like, Hey, there's nothing really here. And they just charged on anyway, which is just a total abdication of, uh, journalistic ethics and standards. It's really remarkable. Uh, before we get to that earlier this week, I talked to Joshua P Hill, uh, about a variety of different things. Um, Taylor Lorenz's interview with, Libs of TikTok, uh, Next Benedict, Biden's comments on how why he's a Zionist and how no Jews anywhere in the world are safe uh, if Israel doesn't exist. Uh, and Aaron Bushnell's um, extreme act of protest it was a really good, robust conversation. You can get that if you go to insurgentspod.com. Just five bucks a month, you get that episode 
and every other premium episode we've ever done. You get an extra episode every week. And we really thank you for those of you that subscribe. Yeah. Um, I was sorry to miss out on that one. I was just on my way back to a little, uh, little trip I took to Virginia. I was seeing the beautiful sights of Virginia, uh, Quantico, Langley, pretty much just those two places were oh. the main places that I was visiting, but it was, it was really fantastic. I enjoyed it. I was sorry I missed that because there was a lot of stuff that I did want to talk about that. Um, but I was, I thought it was a really great uh, interview, a really great episode. So I hope people check that out as well. And I think people will understand if you're absent, you have to meet with investors. So exactly. It's, it's just part yeah, of the, the advisory you know, board. The business. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we get the, the talking points you know, this is a, people aren't interested in this, you know, this is like how the sausage gets made stuff. It's behind the scenes, yeah, it's yeah, inside yeah, yeah. baseball. It's boring. We don't need to get into it, but <laughs> it's just part of having a political <laughs> podcast. It's just this kind of stuff you have to do. So that's all. Yep. Everyone does yep. it. <laughs> Let's get to our conversation with uh, Daniel Bogusla of The Intercept. What do you, what do you think about that? Let's do it. Let's get into it. And Daniel Bogusla will be joining the show right after this. joined by Dan Bogusla. Dan, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a slow news week for you. Yeah. Is it cold in DC? Um, that's a good question. I... Gotta go outside? All right. I'll have to get back in, to you. In Montreal, that. it was like a super warm, like spring day, Thursday, and then, uh, no, sorry, Wednesday, super warm, and then Thursday, like 30 degrees colder, absolutely freezing cold. Like the very next day, it was really jarring and didn't feel good at all. Yeah. It's things are, things are not going well for the, for the weather. So here's the question that I have. Um, Do we try and recreate the banter we were just doing prior (laughs) to turning on the record button? That never seems to work out. We had a good little riff Uh, going before. And do we try and get back into that? That's always really tricky. I'm just going to say, look, if you're a listener, if you're a nicotine user, if you're a leftist, check out my Substack Trigger Discipline, where I investigate Zinn, looking into the single union factory in Kentucky that manufactures every tin of American Zinn. They hold the power to shut down trucking, to shut down call centers, to shut down any boring, horrible fucking job. These guys shut it down. Um, and so I, I reported on how in uh, Philip Morris's 10K, um, they're extremely concerned about their, their single Zinn factory. It could destroy their whole business model. Um, the workers, this international union controls the means of production. Check it out. This is international union. Wait, so yep. within their filings, is there any acknowledgement or plans to diversify? or establish a second factory. I'm so curious how they have this product, which is extremely popular from what I can tell that they all, they only manufacture it one place. I think basically what happened was like, there was like a Swedish company that owned this plant. And then like Philip Morris has been investing in like vape and like smokeless tobacco products. So they bought this one plant and then like somehow Zinn just like became a meme and took off and like, it's like a huge plant. Like I think it's like 500 workers, um, which is, which is big. 
and the, the revenue is just like out of control. And um, I think they probably will expand, but I think it's just it's moving so fast that uh, that they they haven't been able to recalibrate. Yeah, they have a a big fan in Tucker Carlson. I, I keep getting this video. Yeah, yeah. On Instagram. Oh yeah, I texted I texted uh, Tucker Carlson for his perspective, and he he didn't want to comment. Unfortunate. He um he like pretty publicly quit nicotine. He was a big Nicorette user up until 2019 he tried to quit in spring of 2019 the only reason i know this is because that's when i was doing the advertiser boycott campaign so i was watching tucker every night and he would talk about it Uh, but he had been a smokeless uh tobacco and nicotine user for like decades so i guess he's back i guess he's back on the zin because he i see this video on instagram all the time of people delivering him the world's largest tin of zin have you seen yes that? yes it's yeah it's a good video yeah <laughs> i saw him like hanging out with some like zoomers some yeah, the, like weird zoomer podcasters full send okay i i don't know about the nelk boys i guess i'm not quite hip enough for for that yeah that's good that he's being <laughs> kind of promoted to that generation i guess as like a cool guy yeah. It's like kind of the barstool, Tucker Carlson, Nelk crowd. Like, I mean, I, that that Nelk boys enterprise did a sit down with, I think, Trump a year or two ago. Nelk boys? I've never heard of this. Yeah, the Full Send podcast. Weird. Um, could I try something? I've been uh, workshopping really quick. You here. got like a you got like a tight fifteen or what? Yeah, this is yeah, this is like just just a little something that could be a good transition. Yeah. Um this is uh Jerry Seinfeld uh responding to the events of October the 7th. The other day, I got asked to condemn Hamas. I thought they were asking me to condemn hummus. What's next? Guacamole? Come on. Oh, that that would fucking <laughs> kill in 97. Good. You think you think, that, you think yeah. people would like that? That I think they did. Yeah. I think you should pitch mm-hmm. that to okay. them. Just send yeah, them your your packet, little, and ju- it's just that little side side project that them not cultivating. Anyway, the most important thing about this Zin stuff is that it's totally normal and healthy, and it's good to do. Just like Diet yep. Coke, it's it's good. It's a wonderful invention. It's, it's like ninety nine percent water. You get some caffeine in there. Yep. Nothing wrong with no, it. People love it. You, to, you take That's out right. a slimy wad from your mouth, stick it on a wall, or some other surface Wonderful. near you. Yeah, who doesn't who doesn't yep. love that? And now I'm really just re- reusing jokes from the banter prior to <laughs> prior to joining. So, but I wanted to get my shit in, you know. So, <laughs> what we uh, gotta do? When, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about briefly before we got into uh, the story that Dan, or the I guess the stories that Dan worked on this week that I think are very important. The reaction to the outcome in Michigan earlier this week for this vote on committed campaign. They received over 100,000 uncommitted votes in the primary. And the way that is being spun by liberals, Biden loyalists, the Biden team is, well, you're only helping Trump. And there's one kid, and not, not to assign political power to a Zoomer TikToker who just loves the Democrats, but I saw one kid even go so far as to say you're a terrorist if you voted uncommitted. I just want to take a second to think about how we have reached this point where the, the, the yes. just get out and vote. Voting mm-hmm. is so important and we have to protect democracy. But if you put uncommitted on a primary ballot in a, 
a basically uncontested primary, you are a terrorist. That's something I think we can all align with, right? No, yeah. There's no lies detected there. (laughs) No, and it gets to a fundamental point, which is that the American people are the terrorists. If you don't fall in line behind one of the two major, major political parties, both of which are calling for unchecked war and bloodshed, then you are a terrorist. The, the blood of American civilians is on your hands and you should be put in jail. And, uh, you know, that that's it. Okay. And so I think that really gets to the heart of, of things. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that I, that I would, was thinking about that. First of all, like you said, Jordan, like this is what liberals say is the way that you can participate in democracy. You know, you don't protest, especially when it comes to Israel, Palestine. No, no, don't protest. Don't say certain words and slogans and sayings. It makes people upset and uncomfortable. Don't boycott. Um, But what you can do is vote. You can vote for And like, listen, we have one party that supports genocide and one party that supports genocide even more. So you can vote for the, the, the less bad option. But even when people organize around these like democratic institutions in this campaign that came together really quickly over like a span of like two weeks and they say like, no, 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 you still, that's still bad. That still helps Trump. All you can do is just vote for the democratic party. That's the one thing that you can do. But I also thought of funny seeing these like kind of the spin coming from people that are connected to the sort of Democratic Party establishment, kind of bragging, almost like we easily defeated uncommitted in yeah. Michigan <laughs> after like a hundred thousand people were organized to come out and and send this message to the Democratic Party um, in a in a really short time frame, and then the, the incumbent sitting presidents like we easily defeated the fact that like people were coming to show up in this pr- useless primary to vote for nobody rather than vote for us, and they're they're trying to spin that like it's this like cool accomplishment that they did. I thought that was very funny as well. And meanwhile, it, it, I think it was Washington, like one of the biggest unions, came out and and endorsed uncommitted. Mm-hmm. Um. So it, yeah, it definitely has momentum. And I think the other part of the narrative is like, this is a, this is a hyper dense Arab American population, uh, you know, in Michigan. And, and so that it's also, you know, not, not representative of, of a serious threat. And it's like, no, actually a lot of, a lot of people watched this closely and saw that a campaign like this could be organized. And it seems like it's being replicated effectively in other states. Yeah. And what people are looking at, oh, it's only a hundred thousand and, you know, Biden got, What's 500, 600,000 votes? Like, I mean, this is a state with a population of 10 million. And the primary turnout is already much lower than general election turnout. So if you were to ap- apply that same ratio to, you know, general election turnout, that's really troubling. And it's not that they'll vote for Trump. It's that those people might just not show up or many of them might not even show up at all. It's a problem of turnout, not that they're supporting Trump. The response should be, okay, these people are in our base. They are registered as Democrats. How do they, how do we win them over? It's not we ignore them and then risk them sitting out. It's how do we incentivize them to show up? And this is a problem that Democrats never seem to respond to. It's, well, we're just going to change nothing and they'll they'll figure it out by November. You can't bank on that. It, it, it didn't work in 2016. It's a core element of politics is how do you meet people where they're at, address their needs, speak to their needs, and give them something or some reason to show up. And it's just like 
a sense of entitlement, um, self-righteousness, that they are unwilling to do that when these people are very clearly in their base and often a key to victory. Yeah, I, I also was really struck this week, you know, there was, you know, they started doing air air drops of aid into into Gaza. And, you know, it, it just opens up this whole realization of like, you know, the U.S. has provided targeting support. They've provided intelligence support to the Israelis. They've provided all these resources, you know, and there's been this constant debate about, oh, we can't get trucks through the border, blah, blah, blah. And like then all of a sudden it reaches a certain point and a, a switch goes off and these airdrops start happening. And then you're like, well, why couldn't have, why couldn't this have been going on all, you know, the whole time? It's certainly, you know, whatever the State Department says about, you know, airspace or, you know, difficulties in collaboration, you know, we know from the reporting of my colleagues and others that there is no problem with collaboration. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's also just a question of like, they're not even doing the bare minimum. You know, they're not even trying to, play both sides and meet pro-Israel and, and pro-Palestine uh, uh, people in the middle at all. Like the, the notion of airdropping in food was a was an, was an afterthought. It wasn't even written into to one of the options apparently uh, early on in this conflict. So uh, yeah, I think that further throws gas on the, on, on the fire. Yeah. And I mean, instead you have, uh, instead of what you're describing, you have Joe Biden sucking down an ice cream uh, just being like, yeah, maybe we're gonna get a, a ceasefire by Monday, Jack, or whatever, and that's like the most thing that he—that's the most that he says about it, which I found exceptionally grotesque at any time. But it was the day after a United States Air Force serviceman burned himself alive in protest of his own government, his own government's responsibility and complicity in this genocide in Gaza, and the contrast between Aaron Bushnell and what he did with Biden the next day just nonchalantly having his sweet little tasty treat and just just making up some bullshit about a possible ceasefire coming, which obviously never materialized. And that's I think that's what they would say is trying to meet in the middle. Like, yeah, after after tens of thousands of people have been murdered, then we'll maybe talk about a brief pause in the killing, um, which is going to, of course, resume shortly afterwards. And that's that's the compromise. That's the like speaking to trying to appease both sides that they would uh, indicate like it, it's just absolutely gross. Also, we saw this week Biden and Trump went down to the border for basically photo ops and to talk about immigration and Biden invited former president Trump to work together on a border bill while challenging congressional Republicans to show a little spine. And it's, it's these things Great. together. It's the, you know, repudiating, uncommitted voters it's nonchalantly and lazily suggesting maybe there there will be a ceasefire as we see atrocity after atrocity and then yet again asking republicans for a harsh border bill like all of these things together are going to turn people off it's going to discourage turnout and it just seems like they're walking into a repeat of 2016 where people are just fed up with democratic leadership uh, a Democratic administration. And it's not that they want Trump and they're fully aware of the risks and the dangers and the consequences. It's just that they are so fed up with this party. They're so fed up with the people in control and the way that these people don't respond to the crises that Trump exacerbates. It's it just 
I, I can't imagine. I, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that they re- refuse to do anything about this. Yeah. And it, to me, it's just the, like we go back to the, the whole Michigan thing. It's the complete inability to even think about changing course at all. Like in the contempt that they have for people that try to use these kind of democratic institutions to try and put pressure on their elected officials, which is exactly what these institutions are supposed to do. And the total unwillingness to say like, maybe, maybe we should reconsider this. Like maybe we should reconsider our unequivocal support for the most, this, this series of the most horrendous crimes that we could possibly imagine. Perhaps that's contributing to some kind of alienation. Perhaps that's lose that's hurting us in our base of people that we need to rely on in these, in these States. And like, there's just zero effort to do that at all. Like I genuinely, just even genuinely from like a cynical, like electoral standpoint, it's crazy to me, zero effort whatsoever to engage with the arguments that these groups are making zero effort at all to change their course or to change their strategy at all. Instead, these people are just treated with total contempt and they just get, get talked about like they're being, they're petulant babies. Oh, you're just voting on this one issue. Like it's this minor thing with like the mass murder of tens of thousands of little kids. Um, it's, it's amazing to me. And uh, yeah, it's just, I find it repeatedly just totally stunning the way that there's just no effort whatsoever to, to change their strategy at all. Yeah. I just think that, you know, it is unfortunate that there is a failure to recognize the reality that we survived four years of of Trump, that even after he won the presidency, stacked the Supreme Court, uh, tried to gut the the federal government as 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 deep to the bone as he could, you know, the the crippled and and uh, decrepit institutions of democracy prevailed. And I think that there is a a a cognitive dissonance uh, on the left where people think that the way to preserve democracy is by ceding to the demands of a party, the Democratic Party, that is completely controlled by the Israel lobby and corporate interests. And so there's a total breakdown in, in people being able to w- recognizing that standing up for your beliefs is what democracy is and that it is not cowering uh, in fear that that if you do that, democracy will crumble. It, it's a completely counterintuitive um, retreat from the ideals that that these these liberals are are screaming about protecting. Did you by chance see that clip of Nina Turner on election night on CNN on that panel talking about the results? They she was providing context. You know, this is why they're upset, and we need to think about how we talked about people like. Representative Rashida Tlaib in Michigan when this conflict broke out and her 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 emotions, her reaction, her comments. She was called abhorrent. I think she was censured at one point. And as she was trying to provide that context, not just Anderson Cooper, who was the, like the host and the moderator of that hour, other panelists were jumping down her throat. She was the only person who was on that panel that could reasonably speak to Palestinian interests. And it was, it was like David Axelrod, a former Trump administ- administration official, Caitlin Collins, and then Bakari Sellers, who has... Well, Axelrod's an Obama uh, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bakari Sellers is like has long-standing ties to APAC, and he also runs a PAC, uh, a space PAC, 
that received like a million dollars, at least from some Republican mega donor who also helps fund APAC. And he's like jumping in to be like, well, they're suffering on both sides. And it's like, look, man, that's not why people are voting this way. And just like to compare the two and to try to equivocate was just totally disingenuous. But at one point, Anderson Cooper is like, we don't need a lecture. It's like you, you're talking like you're trying to talk <laughs> about you do. Yeah. 100,000 people in this state who are upset, so upset that they're willing to participate in this organized campaign on primary day. And you don't even want to have a discussion about why they're doing that. What is what is the root cause here? It was just really spectacular. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also I, I want to say people are suffering on both sides and in the same way that there's an insane, perverse um, uh, uh, in- incoherent logic with with the, the liberal mainstream of in the United States arguing against advocacy for uh, uh, beliefs that go against the party line, it's also critical to realize that the interests of the Israel lobby fundamentally destabilize Israel society and security. And not only the physical security, but the, the the social fabric of Israel, and that this war is is against the interests of the Israeli population. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that's an important point. You know, I've, I've spoken on this show before about reporting in Israel and 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 my my you know family connections there, and uh, you know I think it's an important point to also make that that. This this is bad for everyone and, yeah. and goes against everyone's interests and is just is is ludicrous. Um, it's a ludicrous line to take, uh, saying that that people are suffering on both sides and that's why the violence should continue. Yeah, yeah. I guess just the the one counterpoint that I would make to that is that there is a massive discrepancy in in who's been suffering, especially over the last uh, five months, but <laughs> yes. overall as well in the conflict. And the reality is as well, even though I agree with what you're saying, that it does have this destabilizing effect. It does make Israel less secure. It does make Israeli people less safe. But there's also widespread support for this war among the Israeli population. There's been repeated polling on this that shows like a vast majority of people in Israel do actually support the ongoing uh, conflict and many want it to escalate even more. So that's probably something we need to keep in mind. No, also. absolutely. Um, and, and I, again, I think I've spoken previously just about how indoctrinated the entire, you know, uh, civilian population is. And I mean, civilian population is somewhat of a misnomer given the fact that, you know, uh, uh, yeah. mandatory conscription. But one other point I would just add is it also dramatically impacts uh, American and uh, American national security as well. I mean, I don't think that this is one thing I've I've hungered for more reporting on. I do not think that the full impact of the wave of radicalization that is going to to develop from the, this conflict yeah. has been analyzed or can even be analyzed at this point. I mean, we are living through a scale of violence that is being recorded and distributed on the internet. Um, that I don't think has really ever happened before. And the impact that that will have on on mass uh, radicalization uh, 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 is is going to be dramatic. And I don't think anybody has touched on that really. Yeah. Um, yeah we, we haven't even begun to experience the, uh, the ultimate fallout and blowback from what we've been supporting there in both the United States and Canada, um, which I'm, it's going to be being felt for, for decades though, uh, certainly. Um, Dan, we, we should really talk about 
this story in The Intercept between the hammer and the anvil, uh, which you co-published along with Jeremy Scahill and Ryan Grimm, uh, which has uh, confirmed what I think there had already been prior reporting on this and what a lot of people already believed about specifically the New York Times article that came out December 28th, Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. We talked about this around that time when that piece came out. I thought it was it was very this whole narrative about Hamas using the the systemic intentional like roving Arab rape gangs kind of narrative or trope that was promoted, which really picked up steam shortly after that first ceasefire ended. And this there was that brief ceasefire. There was some hostages that were exchanged. There was a possibility that it might extend into the future. And then of course Israel uh begins bombing again, begins bombing Gaza again, the violence resumes. And while there's kind of outrage about that, there's this narrative that gets promoted by all these different sources about these these Hamas rape gangs of October 7th. And that was what this piece focused on. So um, I would just like to, we'd like to hear from your perspective, uh, working on this story where you have uh, contributed to this reporting that has turned into a huge scandal, I think, uh, with the New York Times about this story and about how flimsy it is and who was was writing it and reporting it. Do you just want to talk a little bit about uh, your perspective of how this this piece came together and, and what your understanding is of this New York Times story? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, uh, this story is an attempt to explain um, – the 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 various power networks that shape news and trying to highlight the inconsistencies um, in the editorial process for foreign reporting uh, uh, that exists between places like Israel and places like Ukraine or really anywhere else in the world um, and you know I think it's one thing to point out hypocrisy or or point out you know egregiously hedged headlines but what we what we've tried to show over the course of our reporting with the New York Times and other media outlets um, is is the fundamental editorial structures the leadership decisions the way in which certain journalists are prioritized over others despite uh, uh, track records of of uh, error or, or, or biased reporting. Um, and, you know, I think the sort of, uh, exegesis of, of this story, um, really tries to get at that by, by showing step-by-step, you know, how were these reporters brought together? What, what did their reporting process look like? And how does that compare to, to other reports and, and other, um, you know, other, standard, you know, standard reporting procedures that were not followed. Uh, I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest points of contention is, um, you know, who, who is viewed as a legitimate source. You know, a lot of the sourcing in that piece came from uh, Zaka, you know, these, these ultra Orthodox first responders um, who made 
decisive claims as though they were experts on sexual violence. And when you drill down and actually look at, at both their statements and the history of misleading statements that some of the members of this organization have made in the past, um, you see that basically what they say is a lot of their conclusions are vibes based. They basically say, you know, th- we, it's not about the facts. It's about the feeling that we got, you know, exhuming these these corpses and, um, you know, our, our intuition as first responders. And, you know, time and time again, uh, the Israeli government has failed to produce forensic evidence substantiating these claims. And that was a trend that came up uh, uh, over and over again in the course of this reporting. Um on 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 other news organizations is when you when you drill down when you look at the the, the very the the base level um, of claims that have been repeated and and compiled into reports and packaged together in a way to to add legitimacy you find that uh, at the fundamental level there there is no one who can give hard first person confirmation uh, uh, of almost any of these claims. That's what was I, I wouldn't say surprising but just i guess frustrating as i read it at multiple opportunities the reporter that you 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 kind of follow in this piece and not schwartz someone who didn't really have a lot of journalism background or no real journalism background yeah. uh, um at multiple opp- you just go right to the front page in the new york times yeah at multiple at multiple points in the course of uh, of her reporting there She's basically presented and doesn't realize it with this this thought. Like, nothing is being confirmed here. There are no sources. There's no evidence. There's nothing that would validate these claims, especially of mass, systemic, and organized, you know, attacks like this. And still, she presses on. And it was like, the way you, you detail uh, this story, it's... Then she saw somebody on TV or saw some like and all most of the time these people had affiliations with that organization or had positions in the IDF and they are repeating these claims. They're talking about these things happening. And she's like, well, okay, clearly it must be happening. It can't just be that this does this didn't happen. This didn't exist. Maybe there were isolated incidents, which happens in war. I mean, you you acknowledge that It, it could have happened. It could have been. Someone who left Gaza and went into, uh, you know, a, a kibbutz and, and did it. But the idea that operatives were doing this in an organized manner just was not proven. And then... And there's a narrative that has been employed many times before, including recently in Libya. This exact narrative was promoted that mm-hmm. Gaddafi's forces were taking Viagra and... and, and using sexual violence as a weapon in this exact way to justify uh, intervention and to justify uh, this kind of violence. Yeah. There was an editorial meeting you talk about where they brought, they gathered Middle East reporters from, uh, from the staff to kind of try to poke holes, to make their coverage more thorough uh, and and fortify it. And they're asking explicitly, like, where's the evidence? And, they basically admit, like, okay, the, where there isn't any. But then the other reporter, oh, God, his name is escaping me, Gettleman. Um, uh, Jeffrey Gettleman acknowledges at some point, like, we don't really need evidence for this. We don't really need proof for this. Like, I can't imagine any other circumstance in which the New York Times, with 
a prestige, you know, first, you know, a one story would just say, well, we don't really need any proof for this kind of a, for this kind of a story. Well, there's, there's an interesting video of, of Gettleman that was circulating, um, where he was invited to speak at like a Columbia, Columbia has a, a, I, I don't know, a program or, a, some, some Columbia affiliated program around sexual violence. Um, and, you know, he's, I think he's being interviewed by, uh, uh, Cheryl, um, Bill Sandberg. Is it Sandberg? Yeah. yeah. Lean, lean in. And, and, <laughs> and he basically says, I don't like to use the term evidence because that's, that's a legal forensic term. You know, my job is to just kind of collect vibes and, and shape them and, and massage them and then put them out. And just and it's it's a shocking admission. I mean, it's it's just it. I have to say that this this whole time reporting all of this, it, it's it is so bizarre to to hear some of these statements. It makes you feel like you're going crazy um, because that is not what reporting is. In fact, reporting is about collecting evidence and it's about making it airtight. And if you don't have it airtight, then it's about making that extremely clear. Because that is a fact in and of itself, that the facts are eluding you. And that's okay. But uh, then you have to write that and say that. And that's newsworthy. That's relevant. That's something that people can be informed about. That's something is difficult to report on or impossible to report on. Um, but you know, to, to say that your job isn't about reporting facts and using evidence is ludicrous. And I think really... Um, betrays uh, something fundamental about his perspective on on reporting that that he's some sort of maestro con conducting you know uh, uh, a song to his own liking instead of a, a job which is collecting information and and relaying it yeah and i think it really speaks to a, a common phenomena that we see when it comes to uh, our media here in the west and israel which is that we have these powerful media institutions that just seem to be inclined to just take everything Israel says, every claim that they make at face value and just treat it as the gospel truth and kind of work backwards from there. And often this is done like um, with the timing to like disrupt certain other narratives. Like the most recent example that I can think of of this was after the International Court of Justice ruling, um, which... Uh, you know, ruled that Israel could plausibly be uh, accused of committing genocide and ordered the violence to stop, which was a major story. And then immediately after, almost the day after, there's this there's this narrative that gets promoted in our media about uh, UNRWA members participating in October seventh. And then rather than any rather than talk about the ICJ ruling, rather than investigating that claim, that gets repeated just as a as a fact by our media, by our political establishment. And we respond by cutting funding to this like vital humanitarian organization at a time when people in Gaza are starving. Um, and this seems to be the same kind of a case. It was, like I said, there was also a specific narrative tied to this when, uh, when uh, this cease, this initial ceasefire ended was when this, this really started to be promoted. And it seems like from your story, like you're mentioning, it's not just about the authors of the piece. I think there's all kinds of things we can dig into about these people and what they're motivations and their backgrounds are, but it really seems like this came from the top down when this claim got made 
go and get us a story about this, find evidence for this, that this is true so we can put it in our newspaper. And like Jordan was describing, it's like this process of her kind of desperately doing whatever she can to try and find something that can pass for evidence that they can turn into a major story, which then promotes this narrative, which justifies this ongoing genocidal mass murder campaign. Like it's, in, it's incredibly sick the way that you see this process just happening over and over again. Yeah, and, and I mean, look, there was a way to write this article about, you know, there, there, there probably is some difficulty with forensic evidence with, with the rapid burials. Uh, but this article could have been an opportunity to do a straight piece of reporting to talk about the, the still horrendous violence that happened on October 7th and, you know, to, to talk to, to people and give both both sides and, and also add some quotes about people saying that there's been a, a failure to provide forensic evidence and to bolster the, the feeling of trust in the news organization and to say, okay, thank you for presenting, you know, the, the struggle and the difficulty and the confusion of this event. Um, you know, that's what I think a, a newspaper's job is, is, is to, to do the best job that they can and cop to the, to the challenges where the ability to provide, um, uh, the necessary evidence for claims stops and, and to, to flag that for readers. And, um, you know, the, the idea that the piece couldn't have run without this, that, you know, is ludicrous. There's a completely different piece that, that someone assigned for this project could have come up with. Um, so it, it, it shows that at every step of the process, you had a reporter and you had uh, editors and you had leadership just giving it the green light over and over and over again. I just have to mention something about the content of this article as well. Cause like this, this barely even qualifies as being like a journalistic enterprise here. Like this piece it's front loaded with about four or five paragraphs of the most graphic, horrifying descriptions of sexual violence that you could possibly imagine. Um, just, just absolutely horrific, sick stuff. Um, front loaded, like I'm with the understanding that I think most people that's going to be their takeaway. They read that and it just becomes like, it's, it's horrible and it's traumatizing. And then later the rest of the piece is spent with this very kind of flimsy process of trying to explain how they're describing these kinds of, uh, these kinds of stories. And it's like, it's, it's so insidious and manipulative the way that this piece was written. Um, you know, and the, the idea that this is like a piece of journalism is, is, I think incredibly debatable just on that level. Like it's, it's not really what real journalism is. It's, it's purely like shock, shock value, like almost like a, like a written version of like a snuff film, basically just designed to disgust people and designed to ensure that people continue to go along with this, uh, this horrific campaign of, of violence that we've seen uh, since that time. It's, it's just, I was really taken aback by that and how, how completely outrageous that was and how horrifying some of these, these descriptions were, which as we know now, weren't actually based in any kind of real evidence whatsoever. Yeah. And I also just think it's a shame because like perhaps an unpopular opinion at this moment, but like there are extremely serious, committed, brilliant reporters and editors at the New York times, you know, like there are people who like our bureau chiefs or our correspondents or our like people who are not just like sitting in a, in an office, you know, in Midtown, but people who've spent their whole lives learning about a region or uh, uh, a topic and are really good and knowledgeable and also 
conform to, to, to high journalistic standards. Um, and it's just a shame that, that just with, with the fear that exists in our ecosystem right now, that those people consistently over, you know, decades have been pummeled, um, by the desire of, of newsroom leadership to, uh, insulate themselves from external critique. And, and I think like, you know, I have a lot of respect for journalists who, who put in the work and try to learn and try to be subject matter experts and try to actually show people what's going on with the belief that people are intelligent and they can make their own conclusions and, and that they don't have to, that's not their job to, to shape things because, you know, people are, people can reach their own conclusions and that's the right way to do things. So I also just think it's a shame that it delegitimizes the work of those, of those people who are serious about it. it the context about who this reporter is or the person who wrote this story is and how this story came to light and how it flat, it was flagged for people as worth looking into the backstory, I think is interesting. Uh, an anonymous Twitter account noticed that she was liking, she liked a tweet saying that Israel needed to turn the Gaza Strip into a slaughterhouse and, quote, violate any norm on the way to victory. Those in front of us are human animals who do not hesitate to violate minimal rules. And as you know, we've had, I think all of us have had friends who have worked at the Times or know people who've worked at the Times. They have a very strict social media policy and you know they are they come down hard uh if you engage with any content that could even be seen as just somewhat partisan and the fact that this person even if you like attended a pro-palestine rally once in college like that's enough to keep you out a lot of these mainstream journalism oh, uh, circles for sure and i'm just so curious like how this person got this prominent position or this prominent uh task or, or assignment with that kind of a history. I guess they weren't really doing exercising due diligence on who this person was. Again, it's just so confusing that she didn't have any real reporting experience. And despite that, despite the past uh, online engagement, despite the lack of experience, and despite the lack of proof, they just turned a blind eye to all of it. And it reflects a problem throughout our media that they're intentionally in some cases, maybe inadvertently, driving a narrative that ultimately is dehumanizing for people in Gaza, for Palestinians. And they're treating it as kind of like a spectator sport, and they're talking about the conflict in abstract or in passive language. And a good example of that this week was CNN framing the massacre of people in Gaza who were trying to uh, obtain aid as a chaotic incident. And that led to Christiana Amanpour and other CNN staffers uh, speaking out and asking questions and raising concerns internally. Dan, you have a new story about what what's happening at CNN uh, on that front. Could you could you update us on that? Yeah. So uh, actually, the the, the I obtained um, a leaked record of 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 uh, an internal um, CNN meeting from about two weeks ago, um, uh, which took place at the, at the London bureau with, with a sort of three panel, three, three member panel comprised of, of CNN executives. Um, 
and this was kind of supposed to be a, a sort of town hall about editorial vision and, and shifting priorities of the various arms of the CNN enterprise, but it quickly devolved into, into a, a uh, interrogation of, of the executives over, um, you know, what, what staffers described as myriad failures uh, to, to adequately cover the war. Um, and this, the, the people uh, asking questions about protocols and, and, and uh, you know, the decision to host incendiary guests uh, making incendiary comments uh, like the Israeli defense minister. Um, they also raised concerns um, about, you know, the people on the ground and, and the way that, the, the people on the ground were covering this, you know, what types of access they were getting and whether, you know, there should be reports without certain forms of access. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, mo the most high profile person to speak was, was uh, Christian uh, Amanpour, the chief international correspondent who um, basically raised similar concerns that, that staffers had raised with me a month ago over the protocol which CNN has in place to run every story concerning Israel or Gaza through a, a team of editors uh, known as the Jerusalem Second Eyes, which is largely comprised of uh, Jerusalem-based editors, um, to, to basically make sure that that the language and framing and context of the piece uh, is not subject to critique from uh, pro-Israel factions. Um, and so to have the chief international correspondent, who's an extremely well-respected journalist who's covered conflicts uh, uh, in the Gulf War, uh, in Bosnia, um, you know, say that that this was, uh, you know, that, that there was a double standard here, um, really showed that, you know, this is not the grumbling of a few uh, low-level staffers, you know, this is, this, this is being felt and recognized at the highest levels of the organization. Um, and it, there's, you know, there's, I've reported on it. The Guardian did a massive long story about discontent inside CNN. And now you have one of the most uh, famous uh, public facing uh, people in the organization, um, you know, also coming out and saying it. And it, it's unclear if there's a mechanism of public pressure to make it change. I thought, I thought that maybe there was, um, but that seems more and more uh, dubious maybe. But again, it, it shows that there's a disconnect um, between large swaths of the newsroom that are actually generating the work and the people at the top overseeing it and trying to, to sculpt the editorial reputation of, of the institution. I think one of the, I mean, one of the things that a lot of mainstream journalists in our society kind of talk to us about is like this, this need for, to have like non-biased reporting to present both sides of an issue to make sure that there's no kind of conflict of interests or anything like this. But like we talked about, it's, I think that's one of the amazing things we've seen, not just with this story, but like there's a number of other examples of like, yeah, not only, so if you're a reporter and you go to a pro-Palestine protest in college and then that gets found out, you can lose your position because you're biased and you can't talk about Palestine because you're obviously some kind of like uh, extremist activist or something where the ability to work with people that have direct connections with the IDF and putting these people in high positions in our mainstream media establishment is just, and having those people be the arbiters of like an editors for stories about Israel, Palestine. And this is just presented without ever describing these kinds of like conflicts. Um, you know, whether we talk about the, the, 
the co-writer of this of this piece a not the- yeah whether you're talking about her or even people like uh like uh, Jeffrey Goldberg with The Atlantic who is like the editor of a major American magazine has this history of working with the IDF and like this is just part of our media establishment and it's never really never really discussed or this kind of possible bias or conflict of interest is never really talked about like it's really amazing how this how this uh, is presented as just being as part of our normal part of our journalistic enterprises. Like if we had people in that were like Chinese uh, expatriates that used to be that used to be part of the Chinese Communist Party or the PRC, editing major American or Canadian newspapers or magazines, and then writing pro-China articles in the magazine, or with Russia or Iran or Venezuela or whatever other country that you want to pick, no one would be okay with that or consider that acceptable or consider that just to be like a normal, like non-biased journalist. But we can have people like with these, with these literal ties to the Israeli government or even like the IDF or Israeli intelligence working in our media and promoting stories, just basically becoming stenographers for the Israeli government. And this just had this process happens and no one ever really talks about it. I think it's, it's truly amazing to me that this has been allowed to continue. Yeah, it's wild. Dan, we want to thank you for your time. Where can people follow you, find your reporting on uh, the Zinternational Union and more of your work? Yeah, yeah check me out on Substack at Trigger Discipline uh, and also at theintercept.com uh, where you can find under my name tag all the media reporting. I've largely been doing just media reporting for the past three months. Uh, you can find it all there. Can I just make one more point as well before we before we sign off here? Because this is, I think, this is an interesting capper to this story. Because um, you talked about Zaka and the role that Zaka played in uh, providing some of the 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 secondhand reporting that ended up getting passed for evidence in this piece. Uh, and we've talked about how problematic that is, and how like as an organization they're not really credible. And I think something that I learned the other day that I was absolutely amazed by was that Zaka a couple of years ago started a advisory board in New York City and that on the board of Zaka in New York is this man, Stuart Seldowitz, who you might remember a few months <laughs> yeah, ago was literally arrested for harassing a a a uh, Egyptian halal cart street vendor and going on these deranged racist rants about Palestinians and saying that like Palestinian children it wasn't enough whatever what a 5000 children wasn't enough at that time and like these are the people that are in these institutions not only wasn't ad- as the advisor to Obama and he's a part of the like American national security kind of establishment he's also sitting on the boards of these organizations which are then sharing information that uh, gets laundered by the media and used to promote and defend and justify uh, just the absolute worst, most depraved violence. I think it's it's pretty incredible when I when I learned this and you see how the way that this like the way this whole process works is just really sick. But I was just amazed to see Stuart Seldowitz on the board sits on the board of Zaka. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. <laughs> I, I, there's been so much crazy shit. I, I saw that and laughed, and then it got wiped from my, my yeah, hard drive. Yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. Yeah. Dan, thanks, thanks for joining the show. I, I appreciate the work that you do, and I appreciate you can come on and talk to us about this story. Thanks for having me, guys.